Welcome to this week's After Show. I am joined by Bob Mata, the host of The Defense Diaries. I thought a conversation with Bob would be a great follow-up because for season two of Defense Diaries, Bob and his producer, Darren, are putting together an entire season about the most difficult case Bob has ever tried as a criminal defense attorney. He tried the case alongside his father and his wife, Allison, who you will hear him mention in the interview. Coming on the heels of talking about Tom Capano being a difficult defense client, obviously I know Bob's story, so it immediately popped into my head. I hope you enjoy the after show. Go subscribe to Defense Diaries wherever you are listening to Crime Lines. Bob, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and your show? First of all, thanks for having me, Charlie. I'm thrilled to be doing this with you. I am Bob Mata, and I am a podcast creator, much like yourself. I also am a criminal defense attorney of 20 plus years. My podcast, which I started, and we just completed our first full season, is called Defense Diaries. And I'm, I'm hoping that I shift full-time into podcasting because I really enjoy it. You know, I've been a criminal defense attorney for a long time and uh, I've grown a little uh, weary of it. So at this point, I'd love to be a creator full-time. Yeah, I think um, you definitely have the skill, the topic. I'm sure my listeners are thinking right now, you have the perfect podcast voice. I tell people that all the time. I feel like we're old friends whenever I'm like, Oh, no, you got to listen to my friend's podcast. You got to listen to my friend's podcast. We've actually only known each other for like seven months. <laughs> I know, but it's like when we met at the True Crime Podcast Festival, which everyone should go to this year as well. Um, we'll both be there. I knew right away that you were you were my type of people. That was great for Darren and I, you know, those those relationships that we created at that particular festival, which was the first thing that we had done was huge for us, you know, so I'm grateful to have met you. And I, and I've, I told, I think I probably told you this 50 times, you know, I've really, out of everyone that I've met in the industry, you know, I really cherish your advice more than anybody, to be honest with you, you know. Um, and you're not just saying that because I only say nice things about you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm not. You know, I have no idea what you say behind my back. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Don't yeah. don't look at my text with Josh. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, one of the things I've really liked about getting to know you is that you do have a different perspective. We have a lot of podcasts that are either ex-FBI agents, ex-police officers, current and former prosecutors. And then here you come and you're like, well, you know, there's another side to the story. Right. And you come in with a really unique perspective. For those who don't know, season one of Defense Diaries, which I've shouted it out on my show before, so you all should already be listening, but it's about John Wayne Gacy. And I, everyone knows I'm not really into serial killers, except for... True Crime BS, which is about Israel Keys, and it's a different look, and Defense Diaries, which is John Wayne Gacy, but the defense look at it. And for those who don't know, Bob's dad was his defense attorney, which is just mind-blowing to me. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's something to be known for, for sure. This may be weird, but when I was texting you today to set up our time, I was actually in the middle of getting a pedicure. 
And nice. so I told you. the lady, I said, oh, wait one second. I have to set this thing up. And so I was texting you. And then I was like, yeah, I'm interviewing this criminal defense attorney. Have you heard of John Wayne Gacy? <laughs> She's like, yeah. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> That's what his podcast's about. But your season two, and this is why I thought of you for this after show. I have sent you the Anne-Marie Fahey, Thomas Capano episode ahead of time so you can listen to it you got to listen to my rough cut which is always very rough but it wasn't that rough actually I found okay it that's good pretty damn good for a rough cut <laughs> okay well that's nice that's very nice of you to say and but i, I that sincerely I'm I like, if you heard that... one of my rough cuts you'd be like no that's a rough cut i wanted you to have it because i know that your next season is about a defendant you represented correct and one of the key features of the case that I covered is a defendant who was difficult to defend. Yes. So do you want to talk a little bit about your next season in that case? Sure. Um, Don't give away too much because I want people to listen. <laughs> I won't. I won't. Yeah. I. So we did the Gacy thing and that obviously I had a personal connection with that and that it was my father who had defended him and. You know, it was a part of my life in a very odd way for a very long time. And it's always kind of been there lurking, even if it wasn't at the forefront. So for the second season, and I kind of knew going in and I had told Darren, I'm like, look, I think that we should do the Garcia case. So my wife and I and my father, and it was the only time I was able to try a case with my dad, uh, defended Dr. Anthony Garcia in Omaha. And that started in 2013. We litigated it for three years. It was a brutal, brutal case. An 11-year-old boy, Thomas Hunter, was killed. Uh, and then three adults, all who were innocent victims. So going into it, it was an extremely difficult case for us to handle. I have four children. Uh, Allison and I do. Uh, we obviously adore them. And we had never handled anything even remotely close to that in terms of a like a suspected child murderer that was a whole different thing so we really had to kind of sit down and and talk and try to figure out if it was something morally we could do you know because it, it's still at the end of the day criminal defense attorney is a job and we are sworn um you know we're, we're sworn in by a supreme court judge to zealously represent our clients. You can't go in and half-ass it. That's not how the system works. So if you're going to take a case like that, you have to be able to live with yourself. You have to be able to look at yourself in the mirror every day. And it depends. In that particular case, Anthony Garcia, from the moment we met him through the end of trial, when he was still speaking with us, which is <laughs> just another fascinating part of the case, you know, he always, always always said that he was innocent. He never, never made any kind of admissions to us, which, you know, going into, you know, doing a podcast about it, people will ask, well, what about attorney client privilege? Like, how, how are you handling this podcast? And well, he didn't say anything that was incriminating ever to us, you know? So I, I, there's nothing that I could say that would violate privilege. So, you know, with, with that particular case, uh, again, it was just, it was brutal, but from the criminal procedure side of it i think it was the most fascinating case in the history of american jewish prudence and i'm not overselling that it was 
an absolute war. It was an absolute war. And, you know, it was a death penalty case. And I have a client who's sitting there telling me he didn't do it. And I, I can look at the evidence that the state had in that particular case, and it was all circumstantial. These were brutal, brutal murders. The, the first two victims were stabbed. The knives were left in their necks. Five years passes, that case goes cold, and this all took place in Omaha, Nebraska. So I was, I was out of my element. You know, we are Chicago slash suburban Chicago attorneys coming into Omaha. So they did not like us at all. They viewed us as big city lawyers. And so they just were not enamored with us at all. <laughs> and, you know, and, and it's part of being a criminal defense attorney is that they hate the attorneys almost as much as they hate the alleged offenders. It's, it's a weird thing, but it happens all the time. I think it happens more often than not, because the number one question I always get is, how? How can you defend that person? I mean, it's always the question, the number one question that I'm asked. So uh, yeah, that second season, we decided to do it on Garcia and it's really going to be, it, it's going to be a very interesting podcast. I'm going to do it the way that I do it. It's going to be a deep dive. It's not going to be me on my soapbox, you know, relitigating the case. I'm going to give all of the facts that the prosecution laid out, but for the first time, I'm going to actually be able to lay out what our defense was and all of our evidence because Generation Y uh, did a two-parter on the Garcia case a few years ago. And I think there's been a couple others. I think California Dreaming did one. And I can't remember that there's a, a podcast called Camp Campfire Store. Like, I, I can't remember the name of it, but they did one and I, I was listening to that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they, they, they were pretty rough on us. But I have thick skin, and I also realized that the number one source material for everybody that had done their episodes in the podcast was the book written by Todd Cooper, who happened to be the crime beat reporter for the Omaha World Herald and was an absolute lackey for the state. So he was being fed information. There were leaks constantly going to him, and he was trying my client in the press unequivocally unequivocally trying my client in the press and you know like the the world herald is like the chicago tribune it's the biggest paper in town and you know i mean i'd open it up like in the morning and there would be a, a bifold two-page article about my client having committed the murders and this is how he did it and i'm like man it was information that he couldn't have obtained anywhere other than, than the state so i of course read his book he didn't really illuminate what our defense was I had convinced Dateline to do their first two-hour episode ever. So that uh, I think that was, was called The Haunted. I had negotiated that with them. And how I did it is I had given them access to our kind of like war room, behind-the-scenes meetings, you know, like fly-on-the-wall type stuff. You know, with the agreement that you absolutely cannot have this error prior to trial. And they understood that. But I, I wanted people, even then... I wanted people to try to be able to understand what it is the hell that we do, like what, what we are really doing. You know, it, it's not a bunch of scumbag bottom feeders that are trying to get people off on loopholes. It's, that's not what we do. There's a constitution out there that is absolutely crucial to our way of life in this country. And, you know, uh, I, I do everything in my power to make sure that the state side of that is followed, that the police are doing 
what they need to be doing and that they're following the very bright line rules that have been set up at the Supreme Court with respect to our fourth, fifth, sixth amendment rights. That's what our job is. So you've listened to my pod. I, I get into that side of it. I always try to bring a perspective of there are two sides of it. It's like, I always want to say when somebody's like, how do you defend somebody who they say is guilty? I'm like, well, you know, number one, there's a, a presumption of innocence that's constitutional. And, you know, what about the, the prosecutors? I mean, how, how do they go to bed at night if they're prosecuting somebody who's innocent? Isn't that equally horrifying or maybe even a little bit more? And I'm talking about cases where it's not slam dunk evidence, where you're talking about a strictly circumstantial case where there's a, a real mystery that's to be solved. How does a prosecutor feel about potentially prosecuting an innocent person? They have no avenue to do anything else. If, if I feel like my client is guilty, what I focus on is the Constitution. I focus on the motion side of the case. And I say, okay, well, they have some pretty strong evidence. And I'll, and I'll always tell my clients, I'm like, we've got problems here. They, they have a very strong case. They have some very damning evidence. So what I do at that point is I say, okay. I'm going to look at the police reports. I'm going to look at the searches that were done. I'm going to look at the warrants and I'm going to make sure that the cops followed the rules. And if they followed the rules, they're not going to have an issue. If they didn't, they're going to have an issue, you know, and that's not on the defense attorney. That's not a loophole. That's the constitution. And those rules have to be followed. And if they're not followed, there's consequences. Just like anybody, you know, when our kids do something bad, punish them because there's consequences. You have to learn that there's consequences to your actions and, and law enforcement is no different. So yeah, that, that second season, uh, we hope to launch it. Actually our first episode should be dropping next week. Yeah. It'll be out by the time this episode goes out. And then that's good because they can go and subscribe to defense diaries right away to start listening to that case. And one of the things with that case in particular is that you had a non-cooperating client, not in the way Tom Capano thought he knew better than his attorneys. Right. They have actually said they regret having ever taken that case. The the yeah. actual attorneys who worked on it, they did not want to be on that case. They worked incredibly hard because they weren't just fighting the state and upholding that end. They were also fighting their client. Absolutely. I can't think of a worse client to have I, i'd rather have a guy like anthony no kind of i'll get into that um a bit too but i can't imagine having a worse client than having an attorney as a client because it, you know you have exactly what happened with campano the guy was just he thought he knew everything he he was basically leading the defense at war with his own attorneys in terms of trial strategy you know the one thing that i wanted to ask you was in terms of who came up with that with that defense the debbie did a defense that was right. all tom oh yeah i mean come on <laughs> you know i mean it was like yeah. and if you've got a client you know because i always tell people i'm like well, there's three constitutionally mandated things that defendant has an absolute control over and that's plead innocent or guilty jury or bench and then whether or not they want to testify or not. Those are, those are within the complete and total control of the defendant. No matter what I say, no matter what I do, the judge will always say that's his constitutional right. If he wants to testify, he's testifying, period. I don't care what you're saying, counselor. But strategically, traditionally, 
you know, those strategic decisions are, are typically within the purview of the defense attorney. But when you have a situation like the, that case where you've got a guy who basically thinking he's the smartest guy in the room all the time, and he's basically wanting to defend himself, but he realizes that old axiom that the lawyer that represents himself is, has a fool for a client, which is true. You know, he was smart enough to know that he had to have attorneys handling that for him, but him being the puppet master and those guys not having the ability to make any kind of strategic decisions was tough. Garcia was different. You know, Garcia came in, we had free reign over strategy. I mean, he, he was like, you're the lawyers. Again, he, he made no admissions at all. He wasn't exceptionally helpful either, you know, but like there, there were questions that I simply didn't want to ask him because I didn't want to hear the answer. But I, I, I knew that he wouldn't make any admissions anyway. In a case like that, we basically had to go about trying to figure out a way to chip away at the circumstantial evidence they had. And it was such a war. It was such a war. Like the, the state pulled out all the stops in terms of getting this guy prosecuted. I mean, it was unbelievable. And, and I'm not going to spoil some of it, but like just the things that they were doing were just crazy. It ultimately, you know, Allison got kicked off the case when we're two weeks out from trial. When I say she got kicked off, they, they basically pulled her ticket from being able to practice in Douglas County because we were out-of-state lawyers. And when you do that, you had to get admitted what they call pro hoc vice, which means that you're admitted for a very limited purpose and typically for one case. So we had to apply. So basically what, what Judge Randall there had said is like, I'm pulling your ticket. Like you can't practice here anymore. You know, you're, you're done. You're off this case. And it was because she had gone on TV in order to try to level the playing field in terms of, because I had filed a motion early in that case to move it out of Douglas County. We hired a polling company who literally polled a portion of Douglas County citizens to say, hey, you know, like, have you heard of this case? Yes. Have you formed an opinion on this case? Yes. Are you feeling like he's guilty or <laughs> he's innocent? And the, I think it was like 94% came back guilty based strictly on what they've seen on the, uh, you know, on the news and read mm -hmm. in the newspaper. So, and we lost that motion. And to me, it was absurd that there's no way that should have been in that county. There's no way he could have received a fair trial, you know? So, so we had that challenge originally on whether or not we wanted to take the case because of the underlying facts. And then once we decided to do it, you know, then the challenges presented themselves that we had just a very difficult client to deal with, and, you know, in part, of that was the fact of the conditions of his confinement for three years. They had my client in solitary confinement for entirety of the time he was in custody, 23 hours a day. And he lost his mind. I mean, there's, there's no other way to put it. I mean, any of us would, no one can withstand that mentally. The only time I got him out is when I challenged my own client's competency. I mean, he was claiming to us that they were just completely torturing him in there, you know, and, and who am I to say that it wasn't happening? You, you know what I mean? All I can do is go by what my client is saying. Now, granted, you know, some of the things that he, you know, was claiming that were happening seemed not only like a little bit far-fetched, but like, like impossible is, is one kind of way to put it. But, you know, in terms of them kind of messing with him constantly, 
you know, not allowing them to sleep. They had pathways uh, behind the cells where, where the inmates would be and they could pound on the walls, never turning the lights off, like all the shit that they can do to really mess with somebody's mind, you know, on top of no human contact at all. Like he got out an hour a day to shower and to basically walk around in the yard in a very small confined area. Obviously we fought to get him out of, of solitary. So when we did challenge his competency, he ended up going to this Lincoln regional mental health facility where we're going to evaluate his, his competency to stand trial. So that was like literally the only time that he was around other people and was kind of in a, in a different setting. And, and both times that we had him over there, I mean, I saw distinct changes in his mental health. But as we approached trial, he quit talking to us. And, and I put it on the record before trial started. I'm like, my client has not spoken a word to me in four months. I'm like, he's not competent. I, I again, challenge, I'm like, you know, part of competency is that you have the ability to assist your attorneys in your own defense. If your client's not talking to you, it's pretty damn hard to do. And like you mentioned, the journalist that was basically acting for the state, that happens, that happens a lot. Totally. I had a case, um, Dionne Begay was a Diné woman who was killed in Gallup, New Mexico. And I read the police press release, which was then published everywhere. And then her sister sent me the case files. And I'm like, the press release wasn't wrong. It was just not, it was so distilled that it was not accurate anymore. And so I'm like, well, nothing they're saying here is untrue. But it's not the impression you would get. If you wrote an article based on that press release, you wouldn't get the full story. You wouldn't even get right. a drop of the story. Then I go and I read the report, the incident report with all the the first interviews. And I'm like, that's this is a totally different picture. So we have to remember that whoever controls the information controls the information. Absolutely. <laughs> like we, and it's 100%. important that we recognize that. And I think to some degree we get comfortable and we think, in the modern era in the United States, we don't have these problems with yellow journalism or with state sanctioned media, but we do. It's oh just God. done a different way. Oh my God. Wait, wait, wait till you hear this Garcia thing. I, I never, I never experienced anything like it, you know, I mean, because that case in, in Omaha was probably the biggest case that, you know, had ever taken place there. Because it was just a, a real upscale, like the Dundee neighborhood where the young boy Thomas was killed. Shit like that did not happen there ever. It's lawyers and doctors and dentists and professionals that are making a lot of money that live in this neighborhood. Right. And, and it was very close knit. All of the neighbors knew each other. All of them kind of looked out for one another. If there was somebody in the neighborhood that, you know, wasn't somebody who lived in the neighborhood. They were aware of it. It was just one of those cases that really struck them to their core as a community. And when they kind of locked on to my guy, they went with it. It's, it's tough. Like, I've, like yeah. I've been doing this for 20 years and I've, I've had hard fought trials hmm. because Allison and I fight and we, we typically always try big cases together as a team. And man, I'm telling you, I, I never dealt with some shit like this. It was, it was, it was crazy. And, and, it was both sides, though. 
I mean, we were fighting to the death. My, my position is if it's a death penalty case and my job, my only job is to make sure that so I can sleep for the rest of my life, I put them to the test and they prove their damn case beyond a reasonable doubt. Truly. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like I, like I would not be able to, to live with myself if I had an innocent client get executed for that type of situation. It's like, you don't want any other lawyer other than one that's going to fight like hell in that type of situation. Cause you want, like if, if it's a death penalty state that still has it active, you want to be able to feel secure that, okay, he's given the death penalty. They're not killing an innocent person. Oh my God. From the lawyer's perspective, it, it's, it's awful. It's awful. I mean, it's, it's such a weight to bear. I took like four months off after that case. Cause I was like emotionally and mentally just destroyed. You know, I mean, I really left it all out on the table and it was all for the purpose of making sure that they were able to prove their case. And I'm not going to tell you what my opinion is at this point, but you know, it was, it was a hard, hard fought case. And, you know, and when Alice and I kind of started our practice, we hung a shingle right away out of law school, scared as hell, not knowing what the hell we were doing because <laughs> law school does not teach you how to practice law. That is not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is to teach you black letter law so that you can pass the bar exam. That's it. Now they have clinics and we both did like Alice and I both did the uh, criminal law clinic. So you got some hands-on experience, you know, under a kind of a mentor attorney, you know, but it's limited, you know? So when you decide to hang a shingle and you're going to go out and start your own practice, I mean, I always had my dad that I knew that I could call, you know, I'm like, dad, but you know, Allison talked me into moving out to Philly. So I had first passed the bar in Illinois and then had to take another bar exam, the full bar exam in Pennsylvania, like six months later. But, you know, it was like, I was so tense taking the Illinois bar. And then when I passed that, I didn't feel that pressure. I'm like, well, shit, man, if I fail, I'll go back to Illinois, Marty. You know what I mean? So I didn't have like that, like overwhelming pressure, but she talked me into it. And we ended up hanging a shingle out there in Philly and Philly is a damn tough town. Um, so yeah, so we hang the shingle and then, um, we have these cases and, you know, when you're starting a practice, you take everything, <laughs> you know what I mean? Anything that walks in the door, you're like, we'll take it. Um, you know, you like, you have to wait until way later in your practice to where you can kind of pick and choose the cases you want because you're trying to live, you know, I need my, like, nobody's paying us, you know, we have to go out and hustle and make the money. And it's, it's a tough racket. You know, early on we'd get cases and, and Alice and I had this discussion. She's like, I will never ever handle any kind of pedophile case. I just, I can't stomach it. I I can't be in the room with the people. I can't look at them. You know, even if it's the, even if they're just accused, I'm like, I feel the same way. You know, I'm like, but there's still is that like, like, are we to the extent where we're not going to even hear the facts? (laughs) What about a situation where the person is like wrongfully accused? I mean, I'm sure that exists. And she was like, she, she held pretty steadfast to that, you know, like that, that was the one area where she was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to choose not to handle those types of cases because I just, I won't be able to do it. Those are clients that might be too tough for us to handle because of our inability to potentially not be able to represent them zealously. So that, that's always kind of a thing that as an attorney, you have to kind of think about, am I going to be able to do my job properly? You know, because this guy, like it or not, 
constitutionally has to have a, a zealous defense, you know? So that's one of the, the tougher sides of it. Frankly, I'd rather handle a murder case than a, a child sex offender, you know? I mean, to me, it's like, I don't know, like that, that one just kind of, and Allison feels the same way. And, and it's like on murder cases where it's kind of a mystery, it's kind of why you got into the business, kind of got mm-hmm. into the business in order to, to try these cases where potentially you've got the innocent man who, by the way, is like the absolute scariest client to have the innocent man, you know, I mean, God, can you imagine like, you, you know, losing a case where this guy just swears up and down, you've got an amazing defense, you know, and the jury just doesn't buy it. And, you know, because the, the appellate process and, you know, cause I know you dig into appeals, you don't win them. They're very, very, yeah. very difficult to win. You know, it's incredibly tough to get something overturned that's happened at the trial level. There's got to be just egregious issues that mm-hmm. were, you know, mishandled by the trial court. I was just reading an appeal today, and it's the whole everything is once you're in the appeal, everything is seen in the light most favorable to the jury verdict. That's how it's phrased as they're listing out the facts that the appellate court is accepting as facts. And a lot about the appellate process frustrates me. But when I learned that you can be procedurally barred, from valid appeals because you raised it too late right or you didn't you didn't do it the right way they can say you know what that's actually a good point but it's too late no I it know. should never be too late like even if be. it's a trial error and and your appellate attorney misses it you shouldn't not get to then file it if it's a clear error that 30 day notice of appeal thing mm-hmm. is like in stone as an attorney, if you miss that, it's like the worst feeling in the world. I mean, you've, you've mm-hmm. committed malpractice. There's no question about it. I mean, it, right. to the to the extent that this guy's not going to be able to appeal it. I mean, mm-hmm. there's always post-conviction relief act stuff. But, you know, I mean, that's an extremely tough road to hoe as well. I've read those where they're like, it's often in the post-conviction relief things where they say, yeah, this is actually a valid point, but we're not considering it because it should have been brought up on direct appeal. And exactly. it's like, well, but, but it wasn't. And now it is. <laughs> can we right. Can we just move on? Because there are other ways the courts, if someone is appealing to the point of being a nuisance, there are right. other ways to bar them. They, yeah. um, they can bar them to where they need a judge to approve even being able to file their new appeal. There's some guy, totally. I think he's in Wyoming, he's got one of those on him. He, he's, uh, he's, you want to talk about a client, but he's, I'd love to talk to his, I don't think he has an attorney at this point. I don't think anyone's going to touch him, but his uh, actual trial attorney would be interesting to talk to. But he filed so many just frivolous appeals that now he has to seek like permission to even file them at this point. So we have ways to stop people from filing too many frivolous appeals. So, right. so barring them from a valid appeal because it's too late just frustrates me to know it's end. super frustrating like and i'm talking because like, justice should be the answer like justice always. should be what we're looking for <laughs> i agree and it's not like, a calendar you know, right you're you're gonna you're gonna screw this guy over from having mm-hmm. his appeal heard because he missed the filing deadline by a day and it's not me? even him it's just you it's almost it's always the attorney it's always the lawyer mm-hmm. you know it, it's like we like Allison and I, just as a matter of course, if our client is convicted, we file a notice of appeal the next day. 
you know, like we just do it so that it's it so that that guy's rights are preserved, you know, like always because it's it's the safest practice, you know, and even right. if they choose not to go forward on an appeal, you know, mm-hmm. if they can't find any viable issues, it, at least they had the opportunity to do it and his right was protected. To me, that should be mandatory. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, like file the notice of appeal because that's simply just a notice. Like, there's no substance to it. You know, you're just saying appellate court, we're, we're filing notice that we're going to appeal it. If they choose not to file a brief down the road, so be it, you know, but mm-hmm. at least you're in a position where that person one way or another is going to have the opportunity. And if they find some viable issues when they get the transcript and start pouring through it. You know, because the thing about like appeals is you're not bringing in new evidence. You know, right. it's all on the issues that that took place at trial, where where that happens, and and that goes back to that post conviction relief act stuff. That's where if you get some smoking gun new evidence that was not available at the time of trial, that is the avenue mm-hmm. that you take in order to bring that type of information in. And if 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 it exonerates the client, and it's still, it's like man, you watch like. You watch like the discovery ID shit and, and you're like, oh my God, it's like, you, you know, even when they've found like people that have come out of the woodwork with just like smoking gun, exonerating evidence. And it's still like, oh my God, is this judge still going to ignore it? And it happens yeah. all the time. You know, that that's yeah. why, that's why we do what we do on the front end. Cause to be honest, relying on uh, like the appellate level stuff. Like that, that's just not like a realistic way to pin your hopes on anything, you know? So that's why you put up the fight at trial. You know, that's why it's so important at trial. And, you know, I explained it in my podcast. It's like, you know, when people are watching court TV or whatever the hell they call it these days, you know, and, and they're like, oh my God, I'm so annoyed by that. That lawyer keeps objecting constantly. That is how you preserve an issue for appeal. So like, if right. you didn't know why lawyers are objecting, if you, if you, don't object to something that you believe is a, a an issue of law. It's waived. You're better off as an attorney objecting to everything, so that way, at least you've yeah. got you've got your appellate record set. My audience has heard me say I don't know how many times when we're talking about the appellate process, or e- even when we're talking at the trial, any issue you have has to be raised at the earliest possible moment. And if you don't raise it at the earliest moment, then you're waiving it, like you said. And that goes back to pretrial motions. When you step into a courtroom as a defendant, you have the right to a jury. And it's a lot more attractive in terms of for everybody involved from the legal side of it, both the prosecution and the defense and the judge to have bench trials. Like I, I like Allison and I had tried. A, it's a good story. I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. But we had a client. It was a, it was a terrible case. It was husband and wife been married for like thirty plus years. Had a like idyllic marriage, and one day, our client just lost it and like just pummeled his wife for no reason. Really, it was like completely like we're like there's got to be something wrong with him mentally. You know, like this is completely out of his character. He's never laid a finger on her and they've had a happy marriage. They had four grown children. You know, it was like completely out of his character. And she escapes from him beating her, opens a garage door while it's opening. She tries to roll under it and they live in this bedroom community. It's not like a Sunday. You know, everybody's out walking their dogs or walking for exercise. They're mowing their lawns. It's a beautiful day out. 
and this this poor woman comes out, you know, battered and beaten. A couple that sees her, she runs up to them. She's like, "Oh my God, help me!" And you know, so the 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 guy who has the dog is like, "Okay, I want you to go with my wife." And he tells his wife, "You know, take her to our house. I'm going to call nine one one right now." In the interim, while that's happening, our client kind of strolls out of the house, walks up to you know the guy who uh, you know was kind of directing traffic at that point in terms of where my client's wife is going to be. And, you know, he says, oh, no, it's fine. You know, she just fell. You know, we've, we've got everything's been worked out here. Let's just have her come back into the house. And this guy's like, nah, you know, he's like, I don't think so, man. He's like, you know, I've already called 911. We're going to let the police take a look at it. You know, if it's what you're saying happened, I'm sure it'll all be fine. If, so this guy goes to look at his phone again. And while he does that, my client proceeds to slowly walk up behind this gentleman's wife and his wife and proceeds to pull out a gun that he had tucked into the back of his sweatpants and starts firing the weapon. Now the state decides to charge him with attempt murder. Okay. So, and my client from the get is like, I like, I'm a, I'm a great shot. If I was trying to kill my wife, I would have, I would have hit her. So we ended up hiring experts, uh, you know, to basically look at the trajectory of, where they found the bullets to see whether or not he was actually aiming at them, you know, because there's a difference between unlawful use of a weapon charge and trying to kill somebody. Yes. If you're pointing in the direction of somebody, even though if you're not trying to hit them, it's aggravated on unlawful use of a weapon, which is a very high felony, but it's, it's not as high as attempt murder. So we end up winning the attempt murder like we found a bullet that was like 40 feet up in a tree you know so he he was firing but he was you know either way it's up (laughs) you know what i mean but the reality is and sorry if you don't use the f-bomb on your show um (laughs) but either yeah either way he you know we, we get him off on that but the judge was furious furious so it's sentencing for that he absolutely hammered our guy because obviously he was found guilty of aggravated, you know, unlawful use of a weapon and, you know, obviously for aggravated domestic abuse. So he gave him the absolute maximum, which I think was 15 years. And not only did he, he, he sat there and railed on this guy. He had a full courtroom. He told this judge had told everyone he knows, I want you in the courtroom because I'm going to like it. He was attacking. He's like, you just destroyed the sanctity of marriage. It was like he went on this tirade like I've never heard of. It's like improper. It's not what the judge is supposed to do. They're supposed to be unbiased. It wasn't a bench trial. You know, it was a jury trial, you know. So, so and he hated us. Like, this judge hated us because we won that, that particular charge. So, like, fast forward, like, two years later, we have a case. Um, and it, and it was a sex case and it was one of the only ones that, that Allison ever handled. And it was, and it was one where a, a set of three cousins were claiming that their, their cousin who would have been a child at the time, cause they, the, the outcry came much later, like seven, eight years after the fact. And, and our kid was like, my God, I didn't do this. And like his mother was in there, you know, pleading and crying. She's like, you have to take this case. You have to try to help us. And. So we started looking at it and what kind of compelled us to take it was that we found out that this woman's sister and her son had lived with these kids as well. And that that timeline actually fit with 
he was the one who had abused those kids. So I, but from my perspective, I'm like, Oh my God, you know, trying to convince 12 people on a jury that there's three kids standing, you know, getting on the stand and all saying that this guy did it seems like an, like an absolute nightmare. Like the odds are that, that they're not going to believe that three kids are getting up there and they're all mistaking him for the wrong person. And they're all and or lying, you know? So I'm like, we have to do, we got to go bench. We have to go bench on this. And, mm-hmm. and it was with this judge that hated us, you know? So I'm like, man, you know, it, like it was such a, like a terrible position to be in. So like on the record went in and I said, look, you know, your honor, I realize that you have some kind of problem with us, even though honestly we were just doing our job. I said, I, I want my client to waive want to do a bench but i have to hear from you and i hate to put you on the on the hot seat but i have to know that what happened in that trial isn't going to bleed over to where it's going to affect my client's ability to receive a fair trial from you and and like he didn't explain like i was fully expecting him to explode on me and hold me in contempt and you know and he, and he did and he's like no he's like I, I would never do that we end up trying the case in front of him and we end up getting a not guilty you know like on all three counts so it was like a it was a real cautionary tale but my point was is that when you waive your jury there's no going back on it it's absolutely done and 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 it's such a tough call you know in terms of like i always want to go jury because i think you just have better odds it's like all you need is one to get at least a mistrial you know where they just can't let it's hung so I talked to my eight-year-old. I was just telling him I was interviewing a defense attorney, and he asked, well, what's a defense attorney? And I explained to him, he goes, I thought that was a lawyer. I said, yeah, <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll we'll go over <laughs> vocabulary words later. I said, it is a lawyer. Awesome. But And he had a couple questions for you, and you already kind of answered. He had the one you, you said you get asked a lot is, you know, how slash why do you defend someone who maybe did something bad. And, you know, you've explained that. But his other question was, why did you want to be a lawyer? Because, and I quote, it sounds complicated. Oh, man, he nailed that one on the head. (laughs) (laughs) So um, for for me, you know, to be honest, my dad was a lawyer. And, you know, my dad's always been my hero. And, you know, I, I used to He'd occasionally bring me into court. And I was always remember just sitting there kind of like in awe and like, you know, my dad always, you know, really loved being a criminal defense attorney. He was like a Clarence Darrow light. Like he thought it was Mm -hmm. a noble profession and he he took a lot of pride in what he did. And he was extremely ethical, you know, and he had more integrity than anybody that I know. And he did it right. You know, and I fought it. I actually went into social work when I got out of college for four years. I worked for Catholic charities and worked with, I I had wanted to work with children with DCFS and they wouldn't hire me. Like I went and I got hundreds on the state exams three times. I couldn't even get an interview. I was like, wow, man, this is like some reverse sexism or some shit. (laughs) It's like, you know, you know, it's like, it's like these poor women who are out here trying to do this, this social work who are grossly underpaid and grossly underappreciated for such an absolutely crucial profession to our society, you know, and I wanted to go in and try to help you know, and I, and I couldn't, so I ended up never was able to work with kids because I wanted to protect them. I wanted to go in and I wanted to protect kids. And, you know, so I ended up 
finding a job or I was working with seniors and that was equally fulfilling, you know, to me. And I, and I did that for years and, um, I took a lot from it, but as I said, you know, the, it's hard to live off what they get paid. You know, my dad was, when I first said, well, yeah, I'm not going to go to law school. He was like, he wasn't like visibly upset with me, but I knew it was in his craw, you know? So then after three and a half years, I said, I, I went to him, I said, I'm going to take, I'm going to take the LSATs. I'm going to study and take the LSATs and, you know, I'm going to sit for them. And I did apply to many law schools and I got accepted to quite a few of them, but I ended up going to the same law school that my dad went to. So it was really cool for me because like when you, when you graduate and you get your Juris Doctorate, they hood you, they actually put a hood over you. And it was really cool for me because my dad, as a graduate of the same law school, he got to actually come up and put my hood on, you know, and it's totally ceremonial, but it still was a, like a really, a really cool thing for me. And, you know, years later, I always told my dad, I'm like, man, I'm like, you didn't tell me the truth. I'm like, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't tell me how brutal this profession was. He's like, ah, yeah. You know, it's like, and, and it just, it's such a hard job just because you're never off duty. If I'm in the middle of a case, I'm like obsessively thinking about it 24 hours a day. From the minute I open my eyes in the morning, I'm then thinking about like, and, and that's hard to never not to be able to shut it down, you know, to just constantly have that on your mind. I'm telling you, like that pandemic for me, like, I don't give a shit what anybody says. It was like the greatest thing that ever happened because it gave me like they shut the courts down for six months. I'm like, oh, my God. They started with the Zoom. I'm like, oh, I mean, this is like wonderful. I'm like, I can finally reboot. And, you know, for me, had COVID not happened, probably not doing the podcast, to be honest with you. I would have just been in the grind still. You know, it's like mm -hmm. that that break allowed me to recharge and reevaluate and kind of decide which way I want to go. Cause I had been telling my wife, I'm like, I'm miserable, miserable doing this. It's like soul sucking. It's soul crushing. It's so hard. You know, cause, and you just don't get enough of those wins to keep you going. If my heart's not in it anymore, I don't want to do it. I'm not going to be one of those guys because those are the guys who give lawyers a bad name. The guys who are just mailing it in, who aren't doing the work, who don't give a shit anymore. You know, I mean, those are the guys that, you know, shouldn't be practicing anymore because they're a disservice to the profession. They're the reason there's so many damn lawyer jokes. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's a long answer to a short question. He was like, it sounds complicated. And I thought, so I think Bob will appreciate the complicated yeah you've dealt with some complicated cases and again your podcast is defense diaries and your second season is going to be would you say the most complicated case you've covered you've you've 100 and we're gonna get a different viewpoint of it than than's been out there and i know this case yeah. i'm familiar with through podcasts that have covered it but I know a lot of people, for a lot of people, it'll be brand new to them completely. And so they're going to totally. get the whole story. I'm going to lay it out there. Like kind of the way that we're playing this season is I'm, I'm asking my listeners, I'm like, look, I want you guys to be the jury. I'm not mm -hmm. going to do a making of the murderer type thing where I don't posit any of the facts that actually were, you know, like in evidence that was introduced to trial. They, you know, they, they, they positioned that documentary, which I loved and I thought was amazing, mm -hmm. except yeah. the criminal defense attorney. I'm like, what the hell is going on? This couldn't have been their case. They had to, there had to be more evidence. 
which of course there was. So I was upset and I thought it was a little disingenuous on the mm-hmm. part of the documentarians not to give the full prosecution's case. I'm not going to do that. I wanted every single thing that they put in. I'm going to lay out there for, for my listeners, but I'm also going to get them to hear the defense side of it. And I want them to act as the jury because our jury was, my client was sleeping through like three quarters of his death penalty. case. <laughs> it didn't matter how silver tongued I was and like what I argued, like he was done. You know, there was like, there's certain circumstances where you, you cannot overcome it. So yeah, we're looking forward to it. It'll be fun. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this after show and giving me some of your evening. I'm sorry if uh, there was too much background noise on my end. (laughs) So no, I'm super, super happy you had me on and I I love doing it. So thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.